every individual belongs to the Lord in first sense in that he created us so we belong to him to the child of God there's another sense he redeemed us so we're, we who are saved are, we belong to him doubly and it means our life is not our own he owns us and he has the right to dispose of our life the way he chooses after all he's God you say well I, I want to call the shots I suggest for any of us just go and create your own people <laughs> speak uh, into nothing and a universe appears and you take some of that universe called earth and form a man from it and breathe into the man's nostrils he becomes a living being I say do that when you do that then you get the cold shots right until then, we understand who's in charge. Our life is not our own. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 5. If you've been following us online, you know we've been in the book of Matthew for a little while. In fact, we're now in that portion of Matthew's gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're at verse 6. Of Matthew 5, verse 6 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The subject for this morning's message from this verse is an appetite for righteousness. Frederick Forsyth, a writer, said, quote, The greatest motivation in the world is hunger. End of quote. For many people, the hunger they are motivated to satisfy is not for food, but for such things as possessions, pleasure, prestige, power, etc. And there are people in our world called advertisers. They understand this hunger for these things. And they spend a part of their corporate budgets to convince people that their product or their service will satisfy their particular hunger and thirst. And you know that's true because you sat and watched them and you said, yeah, I, I need that or I, I want to do that. They know how to reach us and our drives. And so they attempt to satisfy those longings within us by the offer of their wares. Jesus, however, introduces a different kind of hunger and thirst. One that is, in fact, foreign to the advertisers and to those they seek to convince to buy their merchandise. Our Lord addresses here in this text, spiritual hunger and thirst. In using these powerful metaphors, he speaks to our spiritual need. He speaks to the need for righteousness. And in fact, the very need that he speaks to 
He is the one who can satisfy it. He can satisfy our spiritual hunger and thirst. The craving for righteousness, however, is not a natural impulse, a drive with fallen man. It is a result of a spiritual transformation effected by the Lord himself. Sinners don't have a desire for righteousness. That comes when the Lord begins to work in a sinner's life. There's a logical connection in these Beatitudes. You can read them and perhaps not discern that they are linked. But they are. The one we're looking at this morning in verse 6 is logically connected to the preceding ones. The first three, let me characterize them. The first three Beatitudes beginning in verse 3 are negative. The first one is poor in spirit. We recognize when you're poor in spirit, you recognize your sinfulness. You recognize your lack of righteousness. You come to the profound awareness that you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God when you're poor in spirit. That realization then creates in your mind and heart a a mourning, a, a lamenting, a grieving over your sinfulness. You recognize that you just didn't sin and get caught, but that you have offended holy God. And you mourn. Related to that is then you become meek or gentle. There's a yieldedness of yourself to God's control. There there is a humility that comes. Now, this beatitude we're looking at this morning is the fourth one. It is more positive. It does, though, have a negative element as well. The hunger and thirst, the positive aspect is for, as the text teaches, righteousness. And that desire for righteousness, that longing for righteousness, implies that we do not want its opposite. This hunger and thirst for righteousness obviously is spiritual hunger. Spiritual hunger, then, is our first heading in our message this morning. Verse 6, again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The desire for righteousness is a distinguishing mark of those who are in Christ's kingdom. It is their spiritual appetite. It is what they're hungry for. A sure understanding of your, you being in the kingdom is you long for righteousness. That, that's a real indication that something transformative spiritually has happened in your life. You want righteousness. Nowadays, however, religious people talk of blessing as a matter of material benefit. They've listened to the siren song of the false prophets in our day 
who sing this song that God is some kind of deliverer of material goods. And that's how you know you're blessed of God. If you have material prosperity, if you have health, if you have all of that, then those things signal that, yes, God has blessed you. And that is what you should reach out for. It's amazing to me that God incarnate doesn't say that. God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, says the opposite. He says, you want to know if you're blessed? You're the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Such a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is a blessed person, is a happy person, is a fortunate person, is a person that has bliss. That's what Jesus said. It's not a matter of finances. It's not a matter of wealth. It is not a matter of property. It's a matter of righteousness. Let me tell you why you're blessed. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness. It can only come from God. The God who has, by his grace, drawn the hungering and thirsting person to himself through saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's why you're blessed. A person's blessed when the favor of God rests upon them in that he has called them to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners do not hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's contrary to their nature. You say, uh, why do you say that? Because the Bible does. In John three nineteen, it says, They love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. No matter the profession, anyone confess faith in Christ, but look at what you hunger for. It is only when the Holy Spirit prompts a sinner to seek salvation in Christ that he begins to desire righteousness. Even recognizes his need for it. You may recall in Luke 18, there is a Pharisee and there is a tax collector. The Pharisee thought he had it together spiritually. He didn't have any hunger and thirst for righteousness because after all, he thought in his own mind that he was already righteous. But there was this tax collector despised by his fellow Jews because he collected taxes for Rome. And he stood afar and he just smote his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a, no, the sinner. That was the one who was justified. Let's talk about righteousness here for a moment. The definition of righteousness. You may want to know what that means. The term in the Greek text here is, Dikaiosune, the noun here, is used by Paul in Romans, Galatians, and Philippians. In those epistles, diakosune, or righteousness, means justification or imputed righteousness. When Paul used righteousness or justification, diakosune, what he was addressing was the legal standing of the believer before God. He's talking about a forensic reality that God has declared him righteous. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 5 
chapter 5, verse 6, and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and and the Gospel of Matthew, all of it. Righteousness refers to practical righteousness. It means lived out righteousness. It means righteousness that is put into practice. That is a righteousness that conforms to and does the will of God wholly from the heart. That's what the righteousness means here in verse 6. In fact, in this book of Matthew, this gospel, we see this word illustrated. The word is used and it's illustrated by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Remember when he went to John, to Jordan, to be baptized, he says there to John, but Jesus answering him said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus saying, John, I know that I'm not a sinner. I know who I am, but I want to fulfill all. I want to do what God wants. I am going to identify with sinners. I want you to baptize me. That's a practical expression of righteousness. In Matthew five ten, Jesus says in that verse, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Verse 10, I should say, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for living a righteous life. In Matthew 6, 1 it's clear. Beware of practicing your righteousness. There's that word. Before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. Jesus says do not be a spiritual show off. Don't practice your righteousness so men can notice you and you receive accolades from them. If that's why you do it, that's uh, phony righteousness, and you're going to get all the rewards you're going to get for that from men. But the point here is, it's something that is done. That's the righteousness that is addressed here in the Gospel of Matthew. Let Let me just add this note. True righteousness is unhypocritical and it is done for the glory of God. It's not done for the glory of the man who's doing it. It wants to glorify him. That's the point. That's how you do it. That's why you let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. It's all about glorifying Him. Practical righteousness is what we're talking about here. Practical expressions of righteousness in the believer's life is another way of speaking of living a sanctified or a holy life. Those who 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness desire to be a straight ruler, not a crooked stick. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. That's your desire. And that desire comes from the Lord. This desire is, however, never once for all satisfied. It would be nice if you could go and sit down somewhere and eat. And that was the only time you need to do it. You're never hungered again. No, it's not like that here, right? In fact, this verse, when it says here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it could be translated this way, blessed are those who continually hunger and continually thirst for righteousness. You translate it right into Greek that way. You see, the child of God returns again and again to a seat at God's table in God's diner, and he takes the menu and he points to, give me some more righteousness. And you, you say, well, I don't get that. Yes, you do. We had Thanksgiving just a few months ago, did we not? And you know what you did. You sat down and ate. And you got up. You rested. And you went back to get some more. Didn't you? Go and tell the truth. Shame the devil. So I got to have more, some more of that pie, some more of that turkey dressing or ham or whatever it was. It's the way it is with righteousness. We want more of it. In fact, that reality is a sign that you have spiritual life. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a sign of spiritual life. Uh, this hunger is like vital signs of physical life. I've read that in certain parts of China, when they bring, bury a person, they put some food, usually bread, and some water in the casket. The corpse never says thank you. If we dug up the corpse a few days after burial, the bread and the water would still be there. Corpses never eat bread or drink water unless they do it at the same time they smell the flowers. <laughs> they can't do any of that because they're dead. It's obvious. Likewise, the spiritually dead do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. If a person says they're a Christian but they have no desire for righteousness, that is a red flag. It signifies that something is definitely wrong there in that life because when you come to Jesus Christ, when you've met him, when your nature's been transformed by his grace, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You don't want to be like you were. You recognize your bankruptcy. You hated that. You mourned over it. You offended God. And now you can be holy and you pursue that. That's what you want. I didn't say that's Jesus. He's saying that. See, it affects you like that. 
You want sanctification. You want to be holy. Moreover, practical righteousness is commanded. Sub point here. We crave it because we have a new nature, because we've been saved by Jesus Christ, and therefore with his new nature and salvation has come, we want to be righteous practically. We're also commanded to pursue it. It's a standing duty. Standing duty. In Matthew six thirty three. Our Lord says clearly, but seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Stop at the comma. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom, let me just drop, drop this in, meaning it's his kingdom, his rule, submit yourself to it. His righteousness, he will supply it. You seek it, he supplies it. You're pursuing it, he'll supply it. Your job is to pursue it, and his job is to supply it. I know what you're saying. Seek his righteousness? How? I'm glad you asked. You guys ask good questions. You do it by obeying Jesus' teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, you see the commands that are given here for those who are his disciples, those who are his followers, those who know Christ, know him personally through faith in him. He tells you how you do that. You, and they're right here in this Sermon on the Mount. But also elsewhere in Scripture, In Matthew, this gospel, when making disciples, we're to teach new disciples, according to Jesus, to observe, that is, obey all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 20. And his word is instrumental in us growing in righteousness. There is a text written by Paul which relates to what we just said. It's in the book of Colossians, verse 16. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That word dwell means to be at home. Now think about this. In your home, you control what happens there, right? You determine the setting of the thermostat. You can go anywhere in your house because it's yours. You're in charge there. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it controls us. It's at home in us. 
when the word is at home in us what it does it controls every aspect of our life it controls our thoughts our words and our deeds affecting righteous attitudes and behavior that's what it means and the Christian is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within him or her that's how you do it the word of God is instrumental instrumental it's not optional it is a responsibility of the child of God and by the way the child of God one way you can know another way you can know oh how I love your law Psalm 119 97 true believers love God's law true believers love God's word Paul said that in his inner man he joyfully concurred with divine law Romans 7 it's indicative of true salvation but not only that how do you do this seeking righteousness Paul gives us additional help the word of God given through him in the book of Romans verse 18 and verse 19 two verses there just pull out of here briefly to explain this let me put it like this present your body for righteous use right present your body for righteous use that's how you live practically in a righteous manner that's how sanctification occurs look at verse 18 and having been freed from sin meaning its mastery is tyranny you became slaves of righteousness Paul wrote to the Romans in the first century and I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh verse 19 for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness that is before you're a Christian that's how you did you presented your bodily parts for sin did you not go and tell the truth that's what we did resulting it says in further lawlessness so now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Righteousness is our slave master. I know that, that's, that term can be problematic <laughs> with the history of our nation, but you have to understand there's a difference back in the first century. It didn't have some of the connotations associated with it as it does now and the reality was the Roman Empire was filled full of slaves and so Paul used that to help them grasp how our relationship with righteousness and our relationship with Christ is to be we do what they say that's Christian living so there's spiritual hunger in the life of the believer 
he will pursue it. But something else here in Matthew 5, the final part of the verse, it says, For they shall be satisfied. The heading here is satisfaction guaranteed. Walmart tells you that, don't they? <laughs> I like that, don't you? I, I like a, a guarantee. But this is a higher level guarantee. Jesus pronounces a promise here that those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied. That's the guarantee. He said it. Now, we experience satisfaction and righteousness to a degree in this life. We move along the continuum of sanctification. We become more like Christ as we apply the word of God, as the spirit of God works in our hearts, as we yield to the spirit, yield to the word of God, we see ourselves growing in greater righteousness in practical terms. But we're not there yet. We're like a, a runner. There's the finish line out there. We're getting close. But we haven't crossed that finish line yet. We keep running and we keep running. One day we will. You say, well, why haven't you gotten across the finish line? I'll tell you why. Because there's something in us. Sin. It remains with us. Romans seven eighteen. Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing is not. The flesh. Paul meant there not the body, not this. He meant the sinful propensities, sinful impulses, sinful urges that all of us have. Even as believers, we still have to deal with it. It's a battle, is it not? Amen. So we got this fight going on. Therefore, we will not achieve total satisfaction in this life. There is no point in this life where we will be without sin. We just sin less as we grow more and more like Christ. But there's hope. <laughs> For they shall be satisfied. Future tense. implies there's a time coming. It's time coming. When is that? First John three two. We will be like him. That's the finish line. Because we will see him just as he is. At the moment we see Jesus Christ, boom, we're perfect. He'll be at the finish line. We'll cross it when we meet him and perfect there's nothing we do to accomplish that because the text here for they shall be satisfied is in the passive voice it's a divine passive meaning this that God will satisfy us by divine divine act with righteousness well, what does that mean that word satisfied Tratazo, the Greek term. Tratazo 
derives its meaning from the animal world, the world of animal husbandry, and describes livestock eating until they are completely satisfied. This speaks of being gratified to the point of not wanting any more. In fact, the same word is used in Matthew 14, 20 in the feeding of the 5,000 men. Didn't include the women and children. There are 20,000 probably people that Jesus fed their feeding of the 5,000. Matthew 14, 20, the same Greek word is there. And we know that they didn't want any more. They ate. Jesus kept creating food. Do you remember it? just kept creating food the creator in human form creating food and feeding all these people this massive group of people and they had eaten all they wanted and they didn't want any more so how do I know that because they picked up what was left 12 full baskets they had eaten their fill when Jesus says we will be satisfied He means that there will be no longer any hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's coming a period in our life when that hunger will be satisfied forever. We'll never, ever experience it again. In 2 Peter 3, verse 13 it says but according to his promise we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells the new heaven and new earth the new universe will be the home of righteousness Righteousness, that quality of existence, will permanently and exclusively reside in the new universe. Satan and sin will be no more. They'll be in their place, not a part of that new creation. They will be in the lake of fire. But all redeemed humanity will be the permanent inhabitants of the new heaven and the new earth. And we will be permanently righteous. Imagine it. A place that is totally righteous. There's no evil there. No sin there. No possibility of it. And you are going to be there if you're a child of God. And you will never ever sin. You will be fully satisfied with perfect righteousness. Everything you do think. Will be righteous. We'll never hunger for it again. Never thirst for it again. Our appetite for it will be eternally satiated. Bless his name. Amen. Amen. And we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ. Whom we'll worship and honor and love and praise throughout the eternal ages to come. For what he's done for our souls. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we bless your name.
for the work of the gospel for Christ and what he has accomplished in our behalf and for the realities in our life now and what we're headed for in the days to come we praise you for it in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord the righteous one Amen.